Welcome back to another episode of the B2B Founder Podcast, where we help founders take their companies from startups to scale-ups. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. For years, entrepreneurs focused on the benefits and features of their products and service and how they'll help their customers. However, many of these entrepreneurs are baffled why they're not hitting their growth targets. In this episode, Michael F. Sheen, the author of The Hype Handbook and the CEO of Microfame Media, tells us how we can use hype to dramatically grow our businesses. Being good at what you do is not enough to make people buy from you these days. You have to be able to cut through the noise, and Michael's recommended approach will help us all do that better. It was a fascinating interview. I think there's a lot of insights and benefits if you are trying to get yourself or your business known. So, and I've already incorporated a number of these methods into my business at post-recording. So this is a can't miss episode. At the end, please make sure you visit our website where you can find the show notes, plus the links mentioned with Michael. If you enjoy, please subscribe so you're always the first to know when a new episode is released. Now, let's get the interview started. Hey, Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Brett, it is great to be here. It is my pleasure, and I've been looking forward to this. I know I had to reschedule with you once, so after reading your book, I couldn't wait to kind of dig into some of this, because I think you may have written this book for me specifically. I did. I, I, I didn't even know you yet, but I could feel it in my soul. Exactly. So that means there's more than one of me out there if you miss <laughs> it. But all right, so before we get into that, why don't you uh, kind of share with the audience a little bit about your background and, and what you're working on today? Sure. I mean, the very, very short version is that I'm a writer turned entrepreneur business person. Accidentally, I left a corporate job to follow my original love, which was writing. And I saw a way to make a living at it by doing copywriting and content writing. But I, it turned out I was really bad at marketing and selling myself. So I concocted a new way of doing that, uh, which I didn't know was so new, which I call hype. And it became so effective at marketing my writing services that it turned into a company, an agency. So we work with personally with, with idea-driven businesses. So if there's a, a business that's really based on ideas, meaning they're selling processes, service services, consulting, things like that, what we do is we'll find a niche, usually online, but could be offline, where they can really become the dominant authority, perceived authority in their niche. And we do all kinds of a benevolent mischief to get them recognized as such so they can accomplish their, their business goals, You know, whether that's more sales or, 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 or whatever. Lately, this book, The Hype Handbook, which is kind of an encapsulation of my ideas, came out with McGraw-Hill. And it's, I've been really fortunate in that it's gotten a bunch of buzz. And as a result, I realized how important it was for me to get these ideas to a broader audience, because I think so many less than great people come to mass psychology, which is, is basically what hype is, and, and naturally and apply it to negative ends. And it's not a negative thing. It's, it's a completely neutral thing. And it's, it's become so important for me for lots and lots of good people doing good things and, and producing good work to understand this stuff. That yeah, I've been doing a lot of speaking, a lot of workshops, a lot of things like that, where it's where it's more of the give a man a, a a fishing rod versus a fish approach. So that's been really, really fun and and fulfilling for me. 
Yeah, I think I think there's so many ways we can go with this interview. But first, I, I just want to kind of share what what resonated with me when I started the book. And it was being good at what you do is not enough for people to buy what you are selling. I'm like, <laughs> true. so true, right? Yeah. And I think the the common, even myself and a lot of other B2B founders that are starting their business that, hey, if I got a really good product, I'm doing something differently. But at the end of the day, if people don't know about it, then are you really doing it differently if they don't know, right? I would say sometimes it's the opposite. So I'll often talk to consultants who are making a living, but they're extremely cutting edge in what they do. Like they have a paradigm shifting process. And they'll come to me and they'll say, you know, every piece of work I get, I have to grind for. I have to do through networking and hustling and this and then I don't get it. They're like, I look at X, Y, and Z guru and their stuff is so commonplace and my stuff is cutting edge and I'll look at it and it really is. And I think that's exactly the problem. A lot of people are so convinced that the, the inherent value of their stuff is going to carry them forward, that they'll use words like, it's a no-brainer, almost like with a disdain at all the people who don't get how brilliant their stuff is. Right. Whereas the people whose stuff is not negative, but a little more commonplace, they understand that they need to have a hook and set themselves apart and generate emotion, right? And, and sometimes people do, they get in their own way by being too good at what they do. So the trick is to be awesome at what you do, but have a mindset that not everyone is just going to naturally see that. Yeah, no, I think it's right. And you, you even call that on the book a little bit as well, right? You'd rather have a an average product with, and I hate to use the word promotion, but a good package and a full yeah. go to market around it and you much better than somebody that's really great at it, but can't, right, can't project it. So I think it's the world that we live in. And I think it's so timely with, I live in the, the B2B space, right? And historically that's been a features and benefits. We build yeah. a great product, we can win. And we have 150 or a thousand outbound sales reps that will just pound the mark. Well, guess what? The world isn't buying that way anymore. No, the pandemic shut the door on it. And you know, one of the themes that I picked up on, again, not a rocket scientist, but <laughs> listening to smart people like you, the, the, the theme with these companies and high growth companies now is around content and the founder being out there telling their story. And I think your book is the blueprint for it. So I've had a few folks come at it from different angles, but the theme's still the same, right? You know, people buy from people, it's gotta be human, but it doesn't have to be, it is trial and error, you should experiment. <laughs> But there is a kind of a formula and an approach that you can take to do this systematically versus a just be out there as the hype man in Chicago. We know Bill Vec, even though I'm a Cubs fan, right? <laughs> the, the promotion. And I know I was on a long ramble there, <laughs> but where no. I'm getting back to is so, hey, if I'm a founder, you can use me or some of these other businesses is starting to grow and maybe getting stalled, but really to get to that next level of growth, what's without giving the entire book away, <laughs> you know, what's kind of a good process that we could think about and we can step through today and talk about at least at the high level, how to get started. Well, before I answer that question directly, I want to give a little bit of context because when I first started, or I should say, when I first went on my own, I didn't even think of it as a business. When I said, I'm going to be a, a business copywriter, content writer, I figured because I wrote well, pe people would hire me. And I had been in the corporate world 10 years before that. I was sort of an, an artsy type kid. Like I liked to write fiction and, and people thought I was good at it. And then I wrote songs and played in bands and, and was into 
punk music, which is very like over the top and mischievous and and whatever. I grew up and I, I, I got a corporate job and I became very corporate, meaning you become a fish in the water that you swim in, right? Like you, you, you adapt to that water. So when I left to go on my own to pursue my dream, so to speak, when I thought of marketing myself, I thought of capital M marketing. It almost, it's funny. It was almost disconnected from the goal, which was to just generate a ton of emotion to get people to see me as someone they wanted to buy from, right? Right. I took a course on a digital course on search engine optimization. I read about like landing pages and 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 A/B testing and and all of this. And these are all t- great tools, right? They're they're all important tools. But I, I, I made it out like those weren't the tools. That was the end goal. So I didn't really think about the psychology. I was just driving a bunch of traffic with content. And I couldn't understand why I wasn't getting sales. So the part of the story I left out is when I played in a band right after college, we were pretty successful in every other way except making money, which is why I couldn't stick with it. Right. But we have lots of fans. We used to sell this club out, Arlene's Grocery in New York, which is a s- small, physically small club, but like really like famous, you know, the strokes came out of there and we had a residency there and we were popular. And the reason we would, we were popular, it probably wasn't that much to do with our music. We used to use the word hype. We would say, we're going to hype this up. And I think we got that from hip hop, like the hype man. So it was like, we would do all these mischievous things. Like we, we talked our way onto Showtime at the Apollo because we knew we would be booed off and we knew that would get us press coverage. We used to put these flyers up that said, Dave Matthews must die, which I wouldn't do now that I'm 40. <laughs> it seemed like a good idea back in the day. No, it was a good idea. I mean, it yeah. got, it, it created a tribe because he's like a hippie type guy from for all accounts very nice and very much deserves to live but you know it created this tribe that were like the anti-hippie kind of people so i i actually i walked past that club because it's in new york and i was like at my lowest and i was like what am i doing like i used to be really good at marketing and i just didn't think of it as marketing so i changed my whole approach i started to think of all that technology as like hammers and nails but the actual substance was like, let's figure out what makes human beings behave the way they do in groups. And and it changed everything. And I became really good at promoting myself, right? So all of that to say is that I got from that very like trial and error start, I started to become a student of it. So as a writer, I was always a big reader. So I started reading these, like I've read all the business books, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. They're fine. They're good actually. But you know, didn't give me much of an advantage to read those books. So I started reading biographies of anyone who was really good at whipping people into a frenzy and getting them to do what they wanted to do. So like good people, but also like cult leaders and propaganda artists. I started reading obscure crowd psychology books. The thing in my head was, look, if this stuff is all over the map, if some people are just naturally good at this, okay, I'll learn a few techniques, but there's no method in that. That's just got to be good at it. But what I found was, and what I was hoping to find, and I really did, is that you see the same patterns repeat over and over again. The content is very different. Like, for example, Charles Manson, who's probably the worst person I write about in the book, used the exact same strategy without knowing it as Warren Buffett, but with completely different content. So what I realized was that's why we have a discipline called psychology. We have differences, but our differences are much smaller than our similarities. 
And we process information through our brains and through our senses, which are physical organs and, and functions. So all that to say, it turns out there really are like 12 overarching ways to hype stuff up. And, and again, you got to figure out what the right tool is. I mean, the ancient Romans used epic poems for their propaganda. We might use Facebook ads, but the underlying principles are replicatable and if you learn those, the tools become, that's like the salt and pepper. Right. I don't know if that answered your question, but. Yeah. No, it, it did. And like I said, as I, I went through the book and picked up and like I said, made my, my notes, you can see I'm still a, a stickies and margins yeah. guy when I'm, I'm writing them. But, you know, a lot of the things I said that I wasn't doing, right, because I'm more of the, I have opinions and can be strong opinions on certain areas, especially with how to grow businesses, et cetera. But I, those are more usually reserved for my one-on-one -on -one conversations with people. And you know, I think I can't remember what chapter it was, but you were talking about uh, creating the enemy or, you know, I had contrarian thinking and you, cause you had just mentioned tribes and it built in your, your exchange with Gary Vanderchuk, which kind of started your yeah. elevated your writing. So I think you're right. It is a lot of the foundational stuff, but a lot of us stay away from it. Right. Well, well so you used a great example of features and benefits, right? At one time, everyone talked about features in business to business. And then there was an evolution where we started talking about benefits, but now that's not enough. But the one thing that will never change is that people are more attracted to what they're against than what they're for. And we can all pretend that's not true or not true in my case. I assure you it is true in your case and in every listener's case. It's just a function of what you're against, right? Right. So that doesn't mean go around and, and be a troll. And that doesn't mean go around and especially in business to business, we have to be respectful. But, but look at Basecamp, right? So Salesforce was a benefits play. And that's why they became so big. But they did something truly, truly revolutionary. Before them, it was ACT. And then Salesforce was on the cloud. So they created an industry and they had first mover advantage and all of that. Project management tool. Okay, that's one way to succeed. But then you had Basecamp, which how do you compete against Salesforce? They created a project management tool. So Basecamp does a fraction of the functionality that, that Salesforce did. Basecamp, it does like five things. It's very simple. Now, if it was a features play, they would have talked about the five things that it did. If it was a benefits play, they would have talked about why it's a benefit to have fewer, fewer features as well. It's less complicated. It makes your life easier. That's not what they did. What they did is they picked a fight with the entire way work is done in the 21st century, in the early 21st century or the late 20th century. They said, they wrote a book called Rework and they said, fire your workaholics. They said, if your teams are working around the clock, you're inefficient. You have too much complexity. So they fought a war with over complexity and waste in work. And as a result, horrible lifestyle that comes from that. And the tool that was the natural sort of extension of that was Basecamp. If you look at fans of Basecamp, until recently, they had some sort of PR problems. But until like recently, fans of Basecamp, you look at a fan of Salesforce, it's like, I use Salesforce. Those people are fanatical. They wear t-shirts, they quote the founders. So if you can pick a fight with the dominant story in your idea, there's plenty of people who feel the same way you do and just aren't admitting it. And then you become the tribe leader. And that's really powerful, even in the B2B world. 
Yeah, I think we're starting to see more and more of that because even in that case, the you know, CEO Benny Benioff of Salesforce, right? He's still the face of that company, no matter how. Of Salesforce, yeah, right, yeah. yeah, right. So I think even picking that follows your theme, right? It's the companies that are going to be successful and growing take on the personality or at least the the mission of of their CEOs or founders, and I'm just seeing more and more evidence of that, and yeah, and I don't think I'm intentionally looking for it, but. Yeah, again, tying back to some of the stuff that you're working on and what you're doing, it it makes sense, right? You're creating that community, you're creating that tribe. And I do think part of what we, I have to overcome is the stigma of, and maybe not hype, right? Because sometimes we say, oh, there's hype, but that means there's no substance. That, that And I took back the word. I mean, that is one definition of hype, but I, I've repurposed the word for you. Like, that's 100%. True. Yeah. yeah. And, and it makes sense. It's just even from what we've got to get people comfortable with again is one having an opinion, right? It's okay if you, because I, I do believe you have to have a mission. I don't, you don't have to have solve certain, you know, solve world yeah. hunger or I had a, the founder that's taken on climate or uh, global warming and some of those other things. It's just, man, you've got to have a purpose and a mission to what and why you're building this. Right. And right. being able to articulate the why. And I never really thought about thinking it of what I'm against. Now you said, I'm like, shit, yeah, that makes perfect sense, (laughs) right? We're more passionate about the things we don't like than, right? Yeah, I think the way to psychologically get over that, I mean, we all want to be liked. I want to be liked. I'm actually a bit of a people pleaser. But I think the way to get past those mental blocks are are to tell yourself a few things. One is, if you don't want to change stuff in your corner of the universe, AKA be against it. Why are you in business? That's the first thing. Number two is it's not about being a troll. Again, people think about this idea. It's not about, it's very unsophisticated, despite the fact that it's obnoxious to go on Twitter and Instagram and whatever, and talk about how people are idiots and morons and losers and look bad. That's, that's not what I mean. And people do that. They think they're going to get publicity that way. Right. It's about taking a stand against a kind of a, a solidified, calcified way things are done. And I think the third thing is that this idea that everyone's going to love you especially in the internet era, is is ridiculous. I mean, I saw Seth Godin talk and he's up on stage with, with, I don't know, 500 fawning people in the audience at one of these big conferences. They probably paid him 50 grand to do a one hour talk. And he says, look, 0.001 of the percent of the population knows who I am. And he's like, and that's a million people. And that's all I need. And that's true. Yeah, when you break down like that, yeah, that's absolutely right, yeah. Yeah. And if we can get to, if I can get to a million people liking me, that's, that's a good day. Who love you, who, who, who you're love a celebrity you, right, for. Right. Like Gary Vaynerchuk, who I picked a fight with when I talk on certain shows, it's like, I picked a fight with Elvis Presley. And then when I tell other people, they're like, huh? Who? Yeah. So that guy yeah. is a, a celebrity, like Beyonce level in like the content marketing and social media community. But to the world at large, they don't even people don't even know who he is. But who cares? The guy's multimillionaire off those people. Yeah, with his target market, right? Yeah, that's what we forget about is that this you're not playing to the masses, and, right? Yeah, interesting. So be disliked. A lot of people. I mean, Gary Vaynerchuk. Think about that guy. He started a company which was an awesome company. Wine, or it was his dad's company, but he started the digital component, Wine Library, and he created this Wine Library TV. And wine was always sort of the the sphere of like. Sommeliers, you know, they dress in a suit and 
notes of lindenberry and oak and this and that. And he gets up there with his hoodie and he hasn't shaved in three days. And he's like, oh, this tastes like a cinnamon toast crunch. And, you know, da, 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 da. And, and, you know, 99% of wine people hated that. That means, right. you know, I mean, this bro yelling and screaming about wine. But the 1% who were really intimidated by wine became fanatical fans of this guy. And that's why he's richer than the rest of the other one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it's perfect. And it kind of segue into the other one of the highlights that I had was, well, two, but let's talk about the the consistency, right? Because you talk about, usually the story of your band, right? Rock and roll, punk rock at night on the concert, but during the day you had your khakis and your button <laughs> until you realize that you had to be consistent. It had to be, it has to be you. It has to be the authentic you. And it just can't be turn the switch on, which I thought was, it makes sense when I read it, but I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Because I think some of us do have I don't know, alter ego, or we don't, we don't act how we are because we think we need to be something different during the day, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think a lot of us have really surface level views of what packaging means or professionalism. So like if we go to a business meeting, we wear a blazer because it's business wear, right? right? Or if we think we're a little cleverer than that, we go to a tech conference and we wear clean, expensive sneakers and an expensive t-shirt and tight jeans because that's the hip outfit. But you're just blending in. And it's not just about clothing. We get our website redesigned and we get a really professional web designer who does a really nice blue and white logo and a really nice scrolling web page, you know? And that's great. That's better than being unprofessional. But what, what the real masters of attracting attention and forming a tribe do is they package themselves according to their point of view. So they stand for a certain thing. And maybe they have certain quirks in their personality that stand for that. So like I talk about Andy Warhol. And again, I use examples from art because those people tend to be better <laughs> at hype than professionals, especially as companies grow and they don't have that hunger to survive, you know? Right, right. So Andy Warhol had this kind of philosophy in his art about like commercialism and artificiality of American life, right? But he didn't just paint pictures of, of Campbell soup cans and, and stop there. He had a obviously fake silver wig that he would wear, always. He had aluminum foil as the decoration of his workspace. He coined the phrase, 15 minutes of fame. He would speak. Someone asked him in an interview once, why do you paint Campbell soup expecting this deep artistic answer? And he said, because I like soup. So everything he said, did the words he used were that. So what you need to understand is what are you trying to convey? What's your point of view? Can it be based on your quirks? Because your ability to wear clean sneakers and a blazer to show you're creative Everyone else is doing that too. But what's that thing that's only you, even something you're insecure about? And then how can you tie that to your, the mission of your business, what you're trying to say, and then weave that through everything? Now, I will say, this is probably the hardest strategy in the entire book because you can't turn it off. You have to embody it. Right. And you're probably saying you can't do that. But if you look at the people who do, and they're out there, Richard Branson, gosh, I mean, we can think Steve Jobs did this and he wore the same thing. Every day, like his outfit, right? It wasn't just that. Think about what that said. Apple was about clean design and ease of use. 
and a computer on every desk, not just for businesses. Right. Black turtleneck and jeans every day. In sync. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. Yeah. I had, uh, I don't know if you know, Jesse Cole, he's the owner of the Savannah bananas. You know, oh, I, I know the story. I didn't know that was his name, but yeah. yeah. But he's the yellow tux guy, right? So when I That's interview right. him on the podcast, yeah. he shows up in the yellow tux and the bananas are yellow and he's just, but it's it's more than just the consistency. It's the product. He's putting the fans first. So everything he's doing is it's just tied in. Said. Yeah. I mean, everyone uses Apple, right? But think about it. So the, the, the black turtleneck and the jeans, the computers are beautiful and streamlined. The interface is easy to use. The stores are white without clutter. The, the workers are called geniuses and they are all technically proficient and make your life easier. You can order stuff through your phone at the store. Their ads are hip and have the same color scheme. They're simple. They have silhouettes. There's no running around. Yeah. Everything they did talked about ease of use, elegance, and like an artistic sort of mindset. Everything. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a probably the textbook example. And yeah. I think we're starting to see some more of those as well. Yeah. And it makes sense. Another follow up, not a follow up, I guess it's fun because the, the topics that really got me interested is disruption, but with familiarity, right? That was like, again, makes sense. <laughs> you said it, you laid out the examples, but you have to disrupt, but it ha- can't be too far from the norm or people are going to, is it, I interpret that right? You did. And I think there's a good rule of thumb. So there's two kinds of businesses, especially in B2B. I mean, there's a lot of kinds, but you can group them in two ways. There are businesses that provide a product or service that's really, really, really good. I mean, there are some that just are horrible, but we're not talking about them. But right. the service or product is, yeah. is really good, but it's not really that new. And that's okay. If you have a consulting business, you can go into, you know that you and your team can go into another business And by the time you're done, their team will be tighter. They'll work together better. They'll drive more profitability. But you know, your ideas are based on Peter Drucker. It's nothing new, but you're really good at what you do. And then there are businesses who who they're doing something that's really paradigm shifting. It's really new. And as a result, it's scary because it's hard to adopt things that are new. Remember the guy who created antiseptics and taught about hand washing, he was considered a lunatic and a kook. And his ideas weren't accepted for 30 years. And it was just so obvious. It should have been so obvious that he was right. I mean, he would wash his hands and fewer people would die. There's some research on this. We have a threshold in our brains, a physical threshold for which we don't notice change. If you introduce change in small increments, we can't pick up on it. And that's how magicians work. They'll like deflect your attention and move something really slowly until it looks like it just like popped across the the tape out of view. But at the same time, we are very much wired and programmed to fear our cortisol levels shoot through the roof when massive new change happens, because it makes sense. If everything turns orange and and yellow in one second, that's a forest fire. But if it turns orange and yellow very slowly, that's autumn, that's fall. And neither of those businesses are better or worse. But if you have one of those businesses that's really, really good, but that isn't new, that's when you need to set yourself apart. That's when you do the Tony Robbins, whether it's Lights, sound, theatricality, the orange tuxedo, the the big contrarian idea, Simon Sinek, start with why, speaking in bold statements. He doesn't do anything new, really, but he's good at what he does, and and, and he has this persona. But if you're doing something really kind of disruptive and scary, and you don't understand why people aren't accepting it, introduce it in slow increments. Be as close to what they understand as possible. If you've got a new religion, 
that's based on aliens on the lip of a volcano, start with self-help. Don't start with the aliens. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, I thought that was really good. And I think that was the yeah, Scientology. I mean, that's, that's yeah. what they do. Yeah. Milk before nope. meat, we call it. Yeah. Give the babies their milk before you give them their meat. Baby steps. Yeah. That's yeah. I had a couple notes on that too. And it makes sense, right? Because if you go way off the deep end, you're just not going to get folks. But if you can time and slowly, you know, the other thing I took was kind of with the consistency, right? The, the persona narrative arc, tell your story, but also the keep it bite size, right? Yeah. And what you're saying and repeatable. And so people can get the core concepts. Because one right. of the things that I've struggled with coming from a bit in the management consulting world was everything you go down to 3.0, because that's how you make money in the big companies. You got to use that layer. But the fact is what resonates more is the 1.0, right? Talking about the big things that need to happen and being able to break it down into to smaller chunks when you're like, that seems too easy, but it does but it's powerful when you can, can get that story right. Well, it's amazing. I mean, we think of ourselves as so sophisticated and in many ways we are. I mean, we got to the moon, right? But we are literally apes. Like, I mean, we are primates and we just have less hair than other primates. And we're bombarded by information all day. And it's important to realize we're evolved to survive. We're not evolved and spread our genes. We're not evolved to see the world accurately, right? So we often are, are just, we just feel that if we can make this logical argument, economic or otherwise about our, our stuff, people are, especially in B2B, because it doesn't feel like consumer products that we're gonna survive. And then people give us all kinds of reasons for why they didn't buy from us because they don't wanna look stupid, but really you've just overwhelmed them, right? I love to use stories. I mean, I find these stories that have nothing to do with business, but, but again, to reinforce, you don't want if, if what's working for you is working, keep doing it. But if it's not, look at the people who have been unusually successful at getting challenging ideas out into the world, whether they're good or bad people and repurpose right. it. So I, I love this story I came across of Timothy Leary, the guy who made LSD popular in the United States. And I, I would say he probably didn't really do the world a service because 10 years later, everyone was tripping like crazy and wasn't great. But what people don't remember about him was that he was a very serious Harvard professor and LSD psychedelic research at the time was not a get high thing. I mean, very sophisticated intellectuals. And we're seeing this return in a more and more responsible way. We're looking at these substances as a, a tool for therapy. So this guy, Timothy Leary, he, for better or worse, really believed that, that LSD was this in, in, incredibly important thing to get throughout society. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Yeah, he, he felt that. And he was successful at doing that, for better or worse, as evidenced by Sergeant Pepper's uh, Lonely Hearts Club band. But anyway, he was having a really hard time getting that message out. He was get, It was really not cracking anyone but a small circle of intellectuals. And he had a meeting with his friend, Marshall McLuhan, who is like the, the creator of media studies. And Marshall McLuhan was like, listen, you're explaining this deep stuff. He's like, people can't understand that. He's like, you need to look at Madison Avenue. So he, he looked and he came up with this phrase, turn, it, turn on, tune in, drop out. It's alliterative. It's easy. And he did this really famous speech where he just repeated it in front of all these young people over and over again. No one even remembers anything else that he said. And still, I mean, whatever it is about that bite-sized thing, that vague sort of, oh, I want to turn on. That sounds great. I don't know what that means. I certainly want to tune in and I want to drop out oh, I, my parents. I don't like commercial life, 50s life. I want to drop out. And you can make that whatever you want it to be. 
And that repetition and that vagueness, it really, really can go a long way. Yeah, no, I think it's it's so good. And again, we can use slogans from like, where's the beef, right? That still are resonating. Yeah, exactly. But why not use it in the B2B space, right? Because you want those users to have a certain experience. Let them, right, being able to. I think there's... I mean, I don't know. Look at Gary Vanderchuk. In in many respects, he's a B2B guy. He owns an agency. Crush it, crush it, crush it, crush it, crush it, crush it, crush it. Jab, 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 right hook, jab, jab. What, What does any of that mean? I mean, he explains it in his books, but like... How many people are going around? Crush it. Like, like it's just, he just, he speaks in sound bites. Half the time he doesn't complete his sentences. I, w- I was thinking speak. about that when you use the, the example. I'm like, you know what? I don't know, other than personally, people that are in the agency or the media business know their businesses, but I know Vanderchuk Media, and I have no need to know him other than that I know him, I know what he stands for right, wrong, or indifferent. And I know this is what he does. And so I think it oversimplified, but it makes sense. Never will you hear that guy. And remember, he is paid by large corporations. He's a B2B company. He has followers that aren't B2B people, but it's those followers that get him in the door because the big companies want to figure out how he did that. Yep. And he doesn't have decks and these value analyses and these logical arguments. He speaks at the level of a 12-year-old he repeats slogans. He yells at people to work hard. Like there's very little actionable, complex information there. But yeah. he is a master hype artist. He works people up into a frenzy. And sells the emotion, right? And he sells the emotion. Love, yeah. Love them or hate them, right? You're emotional about the And response. people want a piece of that. And yeah. the companies want a piece of that. Yeah, no, it makes sense. All right. One more strategy out of book I want to touch to because I thought it was interesting. It was your last one. Create a Bible and build a church. I'm like, ah, interesting. Yeah, because you're kind of tying the the story together of the hype story, but I don't want to put words in your mouth. So maybe. No, take- yeah, that's it. I mean, I, I use these analogies of, of Bibles and churches because religions, whether we believe in them or not, or any particular religion, the ones that survive are pretty great at getting people to get very excited about some some pretty improbable ideas. Even even the religions that might be true, whatever you believe in, are, are pretty improbable at first glance, right? Right, right. Challenging. So they're really good at that, the ones who survive. And yeah, they usually have some central document that tells you a scripture that tells you every answer you ever need to know about the, how the world works. And they usually have some institution that is the the final authority for all things. And I think where people go wrong, really a lot in the business to business space, this is particularly applicable. A lot of people write books, right? They say, I need a book. And they'll hire a ghostwriter or they'll have a nagging thing about it. How if I don't have a book, I'm not going to be an expert. And then they write a book and they don't understand why their fortunes haven't shot through the roof. It's not that you need a book. That, that's a simplistic way of saying it. I see these books. I always use the generic title. It's, I made this up, but leadership strategies for the 21st century, or I don't know, digital analyses, leadership, right? And that's great. I guess it's better than nothing. But those aren't the books that make people into superstars in the B2B space. Books like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People make people superstars. That book basically tells you there are seven ways to become effective. No hedging, no qualifiers. Not only that, there's this quadrant, this tool that is the seek. It's like an amulet that, you know, what is he called? The urgent, 
but important, blah, yeah, blah, blah. But it's, a, but it's a visual tool. It's a matrix. It's actually a cross, you know? And, and people will just refer back to that. And, and then they have these other tools, the planner and the this and that. It's sort of like, I have something to, I, I'm struggling with something in my life. Go back to the Torah. And if it gets too complicated for that, go to the Talmud or touch the cross. And, and so what you want to do, if you're writing a book or, or a comparable document, you need to come up with a paradigm for how the world works. No hedging your bets. And it's better if you have, you should have a commandments. This is the answer of all things. And then some like visual representation of that. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. even think about like the Ayn Rand stuff that so many people are into, like the Atlas Shrugged. And that's a fiction book. That's what's so funny about it. People treat it like their Bible to like learn how to be, but these people aren't real people. But this idea that like, this is, is, is exactly how society should run. And then in terms of making a church, it's if you can create some sort of like standard or organization, people won't even ask where you got it from. So there, there's this guy, Mark McCormick, who, who was a you know, decent golfer, but in college, but he wasn't great. And his friend was Arnold Palmer, like his college friend. And so he realized Arnold Palmer was much better than him. And he, they were buddies. And he said, listen, let, let me represent. So from that humble beginning, he formed one of the biggest entertainment agencies. It was a golf agency and it became an entertainment agency. So, he, you know, Arnold Palmer kicked him off. But after that, it was just his own business savvy that got him big. And the kind of stuff he would do. So one thing he did, he created a golf ranking system. So the thing about golf, every course is different and there are handicaps. So it's hard to just rank people by like your win loss record or whatever. Right. So there needs to be a system and it's not very. So he came up with this quote unquote scientific ranking system based with math, blah, 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 blah. But it was run by a private agency. So like people would bring things up like this one golfer who had some of the most wins of the year wasn't ranked on his system, but he wasn't represented by him. And what's interesting about that isn't the fact that that was the case. It's that it was it, the story came and went. So just by saying that this is the de facto ranking system, it became the de facto ranking system. And he became like the Pope of golf. Interesting. So if you can create an organization, I mean, like a lot of someone told me once, and this is a might be apocryphal. I don't know, but that AARP, the, the advocacy group for retirees was created to sell life insurance. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. They've got the whole story and they've got the, the religion around the Bible. And yeah, we're the advocacy group. Like if you're retired, if you're a senior citizen, like this is, is the group. We are all things for retired people. Yeah. Who says? They did. <laughs> yeah. And then people bought it. Is it a government and... thing? I mean, like, no. I mean, yeah. Uh, that's so. That's such a good example. Yeah. Michael, I could talk to you for another hour and a half about this, <laughs> but I do want to be respectful of your time. So before I get to my final question, is there anything else that you think we should talk about or you'd like to mention before we move on? Oh, gosh, no, this has been great. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's so good to talk to a B2B audience because that really is my background. I was a white paper writer and I worked in a B2B space. So the book's gotten, fortunately, an audience with a larger group, but it's really fun to apply these ideas to my original tribe, so to speak. Which yeah. is awesome because like I said, I'm, I'm convinced and I guess I need to get a better job out there that the way to grow a business is exactly the way we're doing this in the traditional way isn't going to cut it. It may yeah. in a certain industry where nobody's doing anything different, but guess what? That, that times, that times are coming. So exactly. uh, 
All right. So the one question I ask everybody is what is one thing you, Michael, would highly recommend? It could be professional, personal, top of mind for you today. What's what's one thing? I'm going to get really hyper-specific with the knowledge that this is not for everybody, (laughs) but it's really changed my life. So at the age of like 42, I started a martial art and I've tried other martial arts before and I never stuck with them. Like I would last two weeks. I, I really didn't like it. And this one is called Wing Chun and it's a form of Kung Fu. It's really interesting. It's got a lot of good life lessons because it's, it's most martial arts have a lot of forms, like 200 forms and you do all this stuff. And this martial art has four forms. So basically a Shaolin nun the only woman who was like a Shaolin clergy invented this. This is the legend anyway, a couple hundred years ago. She basically streamlined Kung Fu to help this woman like fend off basically a sexual harasser, you know? So it's all about efficiency and staying calm in the face of battle. So you do these forms, which are meditative, you know? So when you do them over and over and over, you calm your mind, but it has the added benefit that every movement you'll ever need to use to defend yourself in a fight is in these forms. I don't know. I, I started it. This was a weird thing. I, I only started it when the pandemic started and it would have been easy to quit because we couldn't what they call touch hands. It's like our form of sparring. But there were so many other benefits to it that I stuck with it, doing it virtually with my teacher, my Sifu. And now we're back to sparring. I've tried meditation. I really got a lot out of that. But then things got tough in my life for a minute. And I I couldn't sit alone with my thoughts, which is the time I needed it most. So this having a movement element attached to it, having fists flying at your face where you know, you're not really going to get hurt. But it kind of the idea is like, sometimes I feel like maybe more of us should learn how to take a punch yeah, in this world that we're in. Right, yeah. So that's been, I don't know. I'm, it's not for everyone, but it's, it's not the kind of martial art like MMA where you're going to get punched in the face every day and have a bloody nose. It's, there's none of that yelling and screaming because it's, it's from Hong Kong. It's from Fushan, but it, it, it matured in Hong Kong. It's designed for cities and it's not like all that wearing the robe and the belts. That's like Japanese military you just wear your street clothes. And I love it. It's really changed my life. And I came to it very late. And I'm never going to be a master. You know what I mean? But I don't know that I need to be. I mean, it does a lot for me. And, uh, no, yeah. I love that. I'm actually going to check that out because I'm always looking for ways. And the other thing I say, man, it's never too late. <laughs> yeah. Right. I never would have guessed I would have started a park podcast after the age of 50, but it's been super therapeutic for me. And what an opportunity to talk to folks like you. And so I, I'll, I'll have to check that out. Especially like- because like, if you think you're going to become this like MMA champion and compete and this and that, but if you're doing it for your head, for your body and for the ability to defend yourself, if you should ever need to, then yeah, I mean, you can do, I mean, why you can do it whenever. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. It's a first for the podcast. So I appreciate you you sharing that. And lastly, like I said, I, I strongly encourage folks to check out the book, especially if you're starting business, thinking about starting a business, think about this now versus when you're stuck and trying to figure out how to break through. Because I think these are not just for B2B, it's good for life lessons and how to cut through the noise and what you're doing. So uh, highly recommend that. But if folks want to connect with you, learn about more about the agency and, and you personally, what's uh, the best place for folks to find you? Yeah, thanks. I mean, that, so my personal site, which I'm doing a lot more work with now because I've been doing the speaking and the workshops is Michael F. Shine. It's spelled S-C-H-E-I-N. And don't forget the F because there's another guy with the the other name. Uh, you know, the website for, for the site is microfamemedia.com. I do this newsletter called The Hype Book List. 
That's at hypereads.com. And I send out summaries of all those crazy books that I'm reading, the best ones. So that's always fun. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And it's funny. It wasn't until I started the podcast that I realized a lot of authors do use their middle initial in there to create that, that differentiation. Yeah, so, exactly. yeah, no, it makes, makes perfect sense. So I never wanted to, but then I found out this guy and he's a writer of all things. I don't oh. even have that comment of a name. Yeah. He writes like mysteries or something. Yeah. There's, there's somebody else with my name with the exact spelling. <laughs> and I want to say they're somewhere in like adventure and mountain climbing. So completely different from me. So I'm like, eh, <laughs> it adds. Brett, Brett Trainer is a very good name for an adventure uh, guy, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, Michael, thank you so much for doing this. I, I appreciate it. I learned a lot and wouldn't mind circling back with you in the, the not too distant future. And Anytime. What else we're doing? Because I do think this is an area for folks to differentiate. So pay attention and, and get on it. So now, hey, it was my question. pleasure. I really enjoyed this. Thank you, Brett. Awesome. Thanks. Cheers. 